Hi, welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD 90.7, Community Radio, Santa Cruz. I'm your Hive host this week, Lisa Allen Ortiz. And we're really lucky to have Colorado poet Kirsten Bridger with us this week. Um, I'm looking forward to you hearing her poems. She's the author of the book Demimond and the book All Ember. And she also just does so many collaborative poetry projects with her community and beyond her community. I'm looking forward to talking to you, Kirsten, about all that. Welcome. Thank you. This is fun. <laughs> in play radio. In the hive. Radio. In the hive. In my hive. <laughs> that is true. That's right. Recording from Colorado. Here we are in the Rail Mountains. I wanted to start talking to you about Demi Mond. I don't know if you're sick of talking about it. I know that book has gotten a lot of press. First of all, it needs to be said that it's a gorgeous book published by Lithic Press, which is a Colorado imprint, right? It is, yeah. And it's a gorgeous book about an unusual topic. It is in the voices and about um, prostitutes of the Old West, of Telluride in particular. Telluride in particular, but mining towns all around the West, uh, places like Salida and Leadville and Uray and Telluride. And actually, can you tell us a little bit about how prostitution impacted the economies in, like, what happened to these towns? So what I find most fascinating in my research was that the money that was spent by miners um, at the end of the day, at the end of the work week, whenever they were paid, was cycled back into the economy because they would spend their money on the sporting life. So say the madam is making a lot of money, or several madams, well, they're going to invest in community civic programs so that they become sort of, um, I don't know, more genteel. And it was just, it was interesting. It was a way to keep all of the mining profits in town, in town. and reinvested. And then the community, the regular shopkeepers and stuff were, would have not protest the houses of prostitution yeah, because exactly because they people. would do good as well do good works so that they have their hands in the pockets of the hospital or roads or that kind of thing then people are more likely to look the other way and the demimond the half world was this sort of world that existed in the night that no and one did they could use talk the about term demimond back they did there's a lot of euphemisms for um, prostitution back then you know they were soiled doves they were um, fair Cyprians. They were sisters of um, oh the mortal coil. They were like there's so many names for prostitutes and prostitution, and there was even euphemisms for like depression. And when they were when they were killed or they died early, like they died of despondency. Sometimes newspapers would report, meaning they got really sick of their trade or got sick of being bossed around or making no money, and they would usually fall into addiction or drink themselves to death or take too much morphine or um, laudanum, and they died of despondency. Oh, and that's... So you... That was a clinical... I happen to know you like cemeteries. Do you know this because you also read... Tons of newspapers. Okay. Because my... obituaries? Did they make it into obituaries, ladies? Yeah, they did. But oftentimes they were nameless. In the obituary? Yeah. 
so like recently I, I found um, um, someone did some research on a on a prostitute who was actually buried with a headstone and I was able to find out that she was married in Indiana and then 18 months later she was dead in Telluride and so you know following up with the newspaper articles she was one of the only prostitutes that was buried with a headstone buried with a proper Protestant burial and had friends who called her father to find out her real name because they always had an assumed name of course and what so was she probably married and then the marriage was abusive or somehow it's all conjecture oh, because all know. the record has of her she was between census records so all of it, all it has is her birth record when her mother died because she was 14 her marriage date and then notices of her she death. was 14 when she died when prostitute. her mother died oh okay the pros- uh, Lizzie Daly was like I think 28 when she died in 1915 oh, okay. and prostitution was still going strong and so they reported she was just you know uh, an occupant of the red light district what happened to the other body the other women who died so a lot of times um, you, your madam isn't going to pony up the money for a good headstone. So you might have been buried with a wooden placard or a pile of stones. And over the years, those just disappear. Those go back into the land. They're too ephemeral to last. And they were often buried on the sort of, you know, not genteel side of the cemetery. And so the record of them is gone. A lot of people came and went and made a huge impact, yeah. but they're not part of the written record. But they're here. It's strange. I'm just thinking that, you know, for a mining town where they're t- extracting things from the ground at kind of the expense of some people, and those people are here now in the ground. Yeah. Right? And But nameless. Right. And so, and unmarked. also, so Lisa and I are here at a time when, you know, all of the fall aspens are in, inflamed. They're in the most beautiful colors right now. But at the time when prostitution was legal and thriving here, um, all of those aspens weren't here. They're a mark of clear-cut 100 years ago. And so, you know, when when they were building Telluride and it was um, becoming, you know, an industry of timber and and, and the mines were going, it was very muddy and dark and it had been clear-cut. And so it was just a really different kind of ugly place. And so now we have almost like this ghostly rattling of who used to be here who never got named to me in my mind. Yeah. That's how they started speaking to me. Wait, are aspen one of those secondary growth trees yeah. after you take out the evergreens? Yeah. What, are they yeah. Pine? It's, the so meadowland comes in uh-huh. after kind of destruction and then the aspens come up. And so that's what we see now. Because they've, they've established themselves, you know, a hundred oh. years after. Where there used to be forests, and now they these are the ghosts of those people rattling around. I feel like that. that. The rustle right. of a skirt, the rustle of aspen. Yeah. Very similar. Okay, read us a poem. Why don't you choose, unless you want me to choose one, you choose one that you want to. Well, I think you started out with Mining Town, and I think that might be a good one to start. Oh, please. Um, mining Town. Lightning breaks open the heart of the wood. Every manner of seed takes root, whether by swallow or scavenge, by hawk or by hoard. This is what it feels like to be haunted by the carved bars, vaults, and walls of this town. In the attic overhead, a heaving chest breathes in fine dust like powder. It's almost imperceptible, this slow drag, 
curling photographs of the sporting life, tokens unspent, brittle lace gone to moth, fodder, and waste. A town bought on backs. Museum portraits catch my eye as I walk. Their milky violet bottles, child-sized shoes, and in the alleys, colt shells unearth under most any cloud kick of dirt. Stepping out into the wild, the river talks too. They were too young to be forgotten. Pine-hearted sirens, rustler husbands, banking on their brides, runaway maids, farming their babies to the retired, one-night wives, women hobbled by the work, olden and hidden. So many mind-smudged doves, broken-winged birds waylaid by the boom. That's the poem with that line, a town bought on backs. Yeah. That I really didn't understand until your conversation about how the economy worked. To like the town, the town really was, or the town of Hilliard and maybe the other mining towns grew because men kept their money there. Absolutely. Like took it out of the mountains and then yeah. kept it there. Yeah. And there's another um, poem that sort of kind of echoes that, and it's called Carmine. I did some research about the cosmetics used, and there's a, a specific beetle um, that still to this day red dye is made from. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I was just thinking about that sort of metaphor of the backs of these women. So it's called Carmine. He sliced my smile wider. When I fought back, they fined me for disorderly conduct. I lost my saloon girl position, worked the fine off on my knees. Pale white powder and the precise shade of Le Bruges will conceal for an evening or two. But fantasy is built from flawless specimens. Orchard red, sweet to the core, ripe for the gluttonous worm. A man will pluck an unspoiled apple from the bent branch, devour half, and juices dripping, toss the rest. Yeah. Wow. That reminds me of mining, too, like it is a kind of exploitation. I read somewhere in a um, in an essay in American Poetry Review, I think, and I wish I could remember who wrote it, but it haunts me so much that every field is a battlefield. And I have really felt like walking around with you in Telluride, there's something about the way that you talk about history. It's as if it happened yesterday. Like <laughs> you said, oh, that, that narrow gauge railway yeah, closed down recently or something like that. But it wasn't recently. It was in like 1890. <laughs> it was in the 1900s, but you know, around the time that the uh, Ford <laughs> Model T came yeah. about. And there went the narrow gauge. <laughs> I know it feels living to me. It feels so like everything is haunted, and it'll talk if you listen. And is that because you are active? I I mean I know you are active in the historical society and the museum. Like do you spend a lot of time there, or do you think just from living here and having and growing up here and having your mom and dad grow up here that you those stories are passed down? There they actually weren't passed down to me when I was a kid we would participate like in centennial parades or something and saloon girls were synonymous with sort of prostitutions they were just kind of fun and that was the only women of the wild west if you yeah. weren't like a married wife or maybe a schoolmarm but there weren't very many roles for women and so i always felt like you know prostitution and 
got a little whitewashed and um, it, it was just this caricature of women. And then I started to really sort of poke around and want to figure out who they were. And what I learned was that every single woman that was involved with prostitution back in those days had a different story. Mm. One of the most interesting things was that a lot of them were married. Like, say they were married to some, like, rustler. To local men or to men? Oh, yeah. To, like, some, you know, a lot of them were part of a gang. And they would come into town, and he would sit at a gambling table. She would go make some quick money Mm -hmm. at a crib, say. And then maybe her cousin would hide in the walls. And as soon as a man's drawers were dropped, he would grab out the, you know, like, come out from behind the wallboard, grab the wallet, and slip back into the wainscoting and he couldn't blame her because he knew exactly where she'd been uh-huh. and so it was like a whole hustle that you know gangs of people and um, husbands and wives would participate in I mean money was and would hard. those kind of gangs stay in the same town no okay, moving around, around moving okay. around all the time but that was sort of like there's always a big hierarchy of prostitution you know it starts at the fancy parlor houses where you are entertained by a a woman who probably can play the piano, maybe even speak a foreign language, certainly have entertaining conversation and be young and coquettish or older and just very, you know, fascinating. And then if you're not pretty enough or you're addicted to too many drugs or somehow you're marked, Mm -hmm. then you go down a step and, you know, to maybe a bordello and then there's the cribs, and then pretty soon you're maybe snaggletoothed and plying your trade behind, you know, the bushes. I mean, it was just a big hierarchy. And could did this woman live very long, or did they become no. madams, or did you have Sometimes, to have a house? Yeah, so, so all my research was like cross-research. So I would read a couple of memoirs from like madams, mm-hmm. but I would also read the newspapers. And each newspaper had their own bent on the legality and the morality of prostitution. So sometimes if the crime reports were really salacious, mm-hmm. then oftentimes those were sort of advertisements. They were in cahoots with the madam or the proprietor of the parlor house or whatever, you know, to make it sound really salacious, like, oh, that's terrible. Boy, you know where I'm going to find me Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) Or if they were just sort of sad and disgusted, you know, it was a, a paper who had a different bias. And you had to really read between the lines because these women weren't writing down their histories. They were short So many women, not just prostitutes or people in the, you know, CD classes, were hooked on morphine and laudanum in the early days. What's laudanum? Laudanum is kind of a a mixture of alcohol and morphine. It's just brutally um, um, addictive. And it was, I mean, you could find, you know, tonics for your baby to sleep better with morphine in them or a little cocaine. I mean, there was just, everything was um, so easily available. And, you know, genteel ladies were addicted to morphine. It was, I can't remember the percentages, but it was really high. And so if you're drinking it every night. Yeah. And those women must have, there must have been brutality. Oh, such a, such a crime ridden. Like if you're, you know, pimp or wasn't beating you up or some guy didn't, 
like your no when he asked you to dance. I mean, it was shootout days. You yeah. know, everything was um, rash and and heated. And no, you didn't survive very long. But if you did, you would change your name and no one would know. Like there's a lot of jokes about like people like looking at, you know, portraits of prostitutes um, back in the day and saying, wow, that looks a lot like Grandma Effie. (laughs) (laughs) But you would erase your history. It was all about erasure. And so finding their voices and finding their stories were you were having to read about them. And I didn't want to write another book that was just about them. I really wanted to sort of figure out their perspective, that they weren't just characters. They all had a story. And so there are a lot of persona poems in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ella is her? Ella. Ella. Is she a real person? No, she's a compilation. A compilation. Oh, could you I mean, read she's kind of real to me, but... She's real to me, too, after reading <laughs> the book. Could you read an Ella poem? Sure. Um... One of my favorite ones, it's a little bit longer, but it's as she gets older and she's gotten, the book starts out a little more um, softer, a little funnier, but this is, she's gotten older. And like I said, there's a hierarchy. And so sometimes a saloon girl was just usually a dancing girl, but some of them, um, if you paid them enough, they would turn or live upstairs. And I attach a little bit of a voice to this one. So this is her voice. Ella unrequited. He rode in on a haggard Palomino, eyes lit with stories, prairie hardship behind the boast, enough coins for a bath and a shave and just enough wind to tell his tale right. In deep baritone, he said to his wife, lately departed, She loved to unlace her cotton gown, slip the fabric to her hips. She'd shiver as she bared herself to the warmth of his back. Labor was hard with no midwife, no coal for the stove or water, the well under two storms of snow. He cursed the hawks for their bed at carrion feast, and he pitched his pick through frozen earth. After he buried his beloved and their unborn babe, he drained the whiskey he'd hid in the barn. He found me one evening at the dance hall bar among the hurdy-gurdy girls with their calf-link skirts, tassels, and kid boots. (laughs) I was a woman who did what they wouldn't do. My only instrument, the pluck of my body, the curve of my ear, the rasp of my voice. He followed my wavering key to a room above the saloon, knew more trips upstairs, meant I could make it another month. Without word, he stacked coin and paper in a circle like a clock. I'll confess, I'd die to lie most nights like that, in the dark rum scent of his tonic and soap. The hollow of my stomach ladled around the camber of his thigh. Palms reaching toward the rise of his chest, toward his steady heart. That first blush, the damp ache throb. My own sin and restless break. As he called out in a fevered dream to his darling Eugenia, Eugenia, I beg you, push. If 
this were not a contract, and silver didn't seep through his palms, this ink-smudged morning, what promises we might have let slip. But when I roused him at dawn, to point out the dawn, at sunrise, to point out the dawn, I saw our bond was etched in fading hoarfrost, through winter's pain, our double-yoked grief. I saw myself, rouge-smudged, ruined dowry, moonrod at best. Moonrod. I love her, man. She's a storyteller. She is. I performed it one time, and I had a bottle of whiskey in one hand and a tear in my eye. (laughs) Okay, can we talk a little bit here about... Well, first I want to say that you are listening to Kirsten Bridger reading from her book um, about the prostitutes of the West called Demimond, something you really need to check out, a beautiful book. Um, And... I also want to ask you here about the your literary burlesque show, <laughs> and what, if there is any. I've never. Is there a relationship between your experience with Demimond and the? Could you tell us first what's the literary burlesque show? Well, I'm not doing it any longer, but I did it for probably five years, and it was um, local women, who like one was the mayor of a very small <laughs> little town around here, um, one was a proprietor of the bookstore. Um, one is a very uh, decorated journalist, um, another poet who's um, very beloved. Um, so interesting women who have very full lives. We decided to sort of come together and create a very kind of sexy um, burlesque show, but instead of taking off our clothes necessarily, it was more... Um, taking off veils of our personality, of deeper truths. And so we would play with costumes, but often they were hard-hitting a little more. And we, you know, memorized poems, and we had three acts, and it was fun and body, and um, we just loved it. We had a packed house every time, and we kept moving to bigger and bigger venues. Um, And I had written some poems about these prostitutes, but it was when I was still writing in, in third person. And for a performance piece, you really need something that's first person. And as soon as I changed it, and then changed the poems to really embody a character, they came alive, and I feel like they started talking to me, and I added more and more poems to the collection yeah. that was had just started to be, you know, it was maybe like five or six poems that I was playing with. And so the book kind of was born then while you were doing Lady Burlesque, I mean, uh, Literary Burlesque. Yeah, you were I needed also some writing performance pieces, oh. and they seemed, I was like, well, I'm working on this kind of odd you know, something about the prostitutes of the Old West. And I had I had been asked to go to the Historical Museum and kind of um, dig through their archives and find something I was interested in. And I was really interested a, about all the pharmaceuticals and sort of, you know, natural herbs. Like they had this huge bar of, this huge um, bottle of Larkspur. Why, why, Lark who spur. asked you to do that and why? Um, there was a, a thing called Art and Archives, and they just invited artists to dig around their archives, find something interesting. And I was just fascinated by the pharmaceuticals and this chest that they had found um, 
in an attic and someone donated to the historical museum and it was a, a chest, um, I think, that was found in an old bordello. And so I thought about how much it looked like a cradle and I was thinking of all the, all the children they may or may not have had. But I was still, in those days, under the, um, the conviction that these were women who didn't have children. Um, and they were single women. But I realized that, you know, a lot of times they would have kids somewhere and yes. ride into town to, to do this for a while. Or they would have children and then kind of take them to a, a woman who'd retired from the business out on some ranch somewhere. And she would keep them for a couple months hmm. while they made enough money to get medicine or do whatever they needed to do. I mean, there were so many stories. And I also found out that... Um, if you got a um, any kind of a social disease, um, that would render you um, infertile. Or morphine actually stops um, menstruation, and so that became part of you know the arsenal of, of birth control. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I found out a lot about abortives, natural abortives, and recipes. When and you were looking at this pharmaceutical. All the research. Oh. Yeah. But Larkspur was one of those drugs that um, they would make into a lotion. And it was like a topical lotion that would get rid of, um, it's an uh, antibacterial, is that what I want to say? Um, so like if you had crabs on your um, pubic hair or underarms, um, it would get rid of that. Larkspur, the flower? The flower. Oh. Yeah. Antimicrobial, I think it's called. I don't remember exactly. Whatever a crab Whatever is. it was, but that's what it would treat, lice and crabs and that kind of thing. So this beautiful bottle of flowers had this whole <laughs> underbelly. <laughs> right, like they did. Yeah. Okay, so let, I just get the timeline of the project of Demi Mond for you was that you had this experience with the historical museum mm -hmm. and you were doing liter literary burlesque at the same time mm -hmm. and you started embodying those voices mm -hmm. okay. yeah exactly because the book came kind of fast right like for yeah I mean it was the first it was the first thing that I, I published I was like ending my MFA so Lisa mm -hmm. and I went um, to Pacific together and got our MFAs and I was compiling this huge manuscript of like over a hundred poems. It was like way too thick and heavy and ridiculous, but they were very personal poems. And so when I wasn't writing these personal poems, um, I was hiking and I was finding the rustling of scrub oak to be just very evocative. And I was writing about prostitutes in sort of a very cheeky way. And then my advisor said something to me one day about like, I'm sure they all have a story. And it just hit me hard. And I think right about that same time, I'd written this other poem. And it was just beginning to be like, oh, you need to dig into this. There's something deeper. And then the literary burlesque, and it just sort of all snowballed and ended up being this chapbook that looks like a full volume because Lithic Press let me put historical photos on vellum between every single poem. It's really beautiful and the... And where did the photos come from? Did you find those? I found, yeah, I, I think I found like 90% of them. I had some other photos, but they weren't in the public domain. Mm -hmm. And so we would have had to pay for them. And the book already was quite expensive and there was a hardback. So I think there is even still, we published like 100 hardback editions. And then um, 
you know, a lot of soft cover with, you know, French folds. I mean, it's very lovely. Little it's a beautiful book. Chapbook. Really well done. Yeah. Um, and he makes other good books. Oh, he, Lithic he Press makes. is an incredible publisher, and we're so lucky to have them in Colorado. Um, it also gives um, each poem, it sets off each poem, it like gives it a respect to have the, the vellum paper in between all of those. And I was also thinking, like to have all these forgotten women now have, um, now be remembered in this way with poetry. What do you think poetry does for them that like the History Museum does not do? for remembering the past like what do you think of the relationship between us between poetry and the past versus other ways that we interact with the past I think it's chinking between the logs of a miner's cabin you know it's like it's the stuff in the middle like if you go to a historical museum you'll see these tiny shoes and these very small beaded purses and some silk stockings and you'll see some names, possibly. You might see some dates of like who was in the boarding houses, AKA, you know, bordellos. They were often called boarding houses, but they were houses of prostitution mm-hmm. oftentimes. Um, and you see artifacts of their life, but there's no story to it because every story would be conjecture because there's no journals left over. Mm-hmm. And so this is an imagined past based on the lines between the newspapers, between the artifacts, um, told with sort of intuition and the whisper of aspens. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining the Hive. We're going to take a break, and we will be, be back honey, soon. Be, be Hello, it's time for the Hive Poetry Collective. Poetry calendar on KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7. Uh, hey, on November 7th, Thursday, November 7th, Tayahamba, Jess, and Harmony Holiday are going to be in San Jose, hosted by the Center for Literary Arts. That's going to be at Forager on 420 South 1st Street in San Jose. Uh, then we have two things coming up on the 21st, November 21st. Of course, Willow Glen Library, um, Poetry Center of San Jose, hosts a reading there in November. It's poet Linda Lappin features, followed by an open mic. That's Thursday, November 21st. And also on Thursday, November 21st, at the MLK Library on San Jose State University campus, 6.30 p.m., Marilyn Chin, Lawson, Fusawa and Nada, and Sean Wong. They're all uh, celebrating the upcoming um, 45th anniversary of IE, an anthology of Asian American writers. Don't miss that. Uh, let's see. November 12th has Coastside Poetry. If you want to go up to Half Moon Bay to Cafe Society, there's three local poets followed by an open mic. And never miss the Community Writers Series in SoCal at the Charming Porter Memorial Library, 2.30 Saturday afternoon, November 23rd. This month's featured reader is Patty Sirens. And we really don't want you to miss, and we want you to mark your calendars right now and also RSVP at Eventbrite for the Hive Poetry Collective's own uh, 
series, inaugural series, featuring the poet Patricia Smith. She's going to come to Santa Cruz Sunday, December 8th, and she'll be reading at the Maw. Visit hivepoetry.org to get more deets and RSVP on Eventbrite. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to our interview with Kirsten Bridger on KSQD, Santa Cruz Community Radio 90.7. Be for honey, be, be for Hello, yes, you're back on The Hive Poetry Collective. I'm your host, Lisa Allen Ortiz, and here with Kirsten Bridger, Colorado poet Kirsten Bridger. I don't know if I should use the moniker Colorado poet, woman poet, western poet. Seems like you're really a Colorado poet. You're just a regular person. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I wanted to talk to you about some of your... Can you tell us about what you've been working on recently with the avalanches? And if you want to talk about how that came to be... And sure. then read a couple? Yeah, so I would say that we've lost a lot of local people um, to avalanches recently. And this last winter was um, a lot of avalanches on some of our favorite um, hiking trails. And then there's been so many avalanches that like naturalists and people who study avalanche can't even get to them all because they're in the backcountry and they're just there's just been so many that there's just not enough Why are, workforce there... to sort of just to figure out where the forests are at, you know, just sort of checking on the health and wellness of our mountains and what's just what's going on. Is it related to climate change or Probably. To, okay. Probably. Oh, no. Well, it's not because there are more people in the mountains or... Oh, because of the avalanche? I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those years, heavy avalanche season. And when you stand in the midst of that kind of destruction, like... In the springtime, there's something about seeing just a log pile that just feels so much greater than you, you know, created by a force so much bigger than you. And it's so devastating and violent, but so curious and fascinating to see your forest laying on its side. It's, it's a really strange feeling, and I think I've been trying to figure out what it means to me, what the metaphors are, trying to just write myself through it. So I just keep writing about it, and I'm, and I'm not done yet, <laughs> I don't think. So um, this one's called Fall in Late March. I wasn't there when I all gave way. Imagine, though, the sound louder than elk herds rushing in mass, a long locomotive shunting new track. Had I opened my mouth to taste it? a cold stew of a thousand hawk's wings and chanterelle, a last supper, tongue shoved by frozen rivers of sage and evergreen, choked in a winter's bite. I've heard about tsunami victims, tumbling in the drum of water like laundry jeans, telephone poles tossed in the murky waters of unrooted villages, hands uncoupled from lovers and mothers and children. But here, on this floor, Weeks after the great white force blew out the candles of Aspen, I stand like a groom, my runaway bride gone, not a trace of her alpine veil, her impractical train, her rush. She's left the station. All that remains, half the altar, gutted ground, a bruised juniper spray on my lapel, 
a gin, a jilt holding me bound, broken wishes wrung round seed pockets, waiting to swell. Oh, that's beautiful, imagining the, the avalanche as a bride and Runaway well, a runaway bride for sure. Wow, it's so interesting because you don't know, you don't really see the devastation of the trees down until the snow melts, right? You know? Yeah, oh. yeah. I mean, sometimes it's on top and you just see like you know like the tiny tips of things. But as soon as the melt, the snow melted, we were up there in March, um, and it was pretty soupy up there. But it was just fresh, you know, all the the torn hearts of the trees just exposed and twisted and it was it was incredible and which is different than like seeing like is our screes also or other fallen things on the mountains Scree that are fields. like yeah they don't have avalanches that happened a long time ago but when it's fresh it has that like the bride ran away to the train station kind of feeling yeah okay read us <laughs> another one um okay I love that term. Um, did you say tongue shove? Yeah, tongue shove. There was a whole lot of like um, kind of taste um, imagery in there in that poem too. I was thinking of like my mouth was so open looking at the devastation, but had I been there, I would have been gone. All right, you would have just just been wiped out. Yeah, such a force. Nothing else could have done that, but this big you know, gulp of snow. Right. Um, so one of the things that I used to do, and I still do sometimes, is there's a lot written in the aspens. They're so soft, they're easy to carve into, so lovers carve their names, and the Basque shepherds used to um, draw pornography, or just a, 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 like a mark, I was here, or directions to another horseman who would come along. Um, it's just so easy to make a mark in an aspen. And um, so one of the first poems I wrote about the devastation was this one. It's called Memoir After Ash Avalanche. A ruined library. Countless quakies lay flat against the chest of this hillside. Biographies of storm and drought. Bookmark of elk velvet. Picture books written in the hand of Basque and scratch of bear. Romance flash in the bark. But this too is true. Author initials will sprout clover and meadow grass in the spiced air of weeping brooks and dusty spires whittled bare, split into sharp sections redolent with sap and bitter pulpy hearts. Matchsticks among the broken boughs, overwritten narratives ready for a future burn. This is how we lay down our lives our naked evolution circles, shorn to the light. Family history marred with lightning strike and rainfall, circular conclusions, new skin every year. Wow, beautiful. Um, do you have a plan for the avalanche poems or are you just seeing? I'm seeing what, what, what happens with them. I think kind of like with the, um, with the Demamon poems, Right now, the avalanche is starting to say, I'd like a turn. I'd like to say a little something. So those poems are still in draft form. Um, poems ab about, you know, animating the mountain a little bit. And, and, it, 
and it not having our sensibility of right and wrong. You know, destruction is kind of another Tuesday for a mountain. But, you know, so this poem um, kind of starts to address that, but it's not until my later drafts that I'm really, I think, getting to something. But this is called Of Pyre and Uprising. What I know about deep time, I know from watching seasons. Consummation and retreat. Nettles and thistle stake the sharpest claims. Yet their balm can heal stark abrasion, rejuvenation by wood-scented infusion. This inevitable collapse is not without witness. Notice the eyes of the aspen, six or so upright. The few the onslaught failed to reach. Sometimes revolution looks like a wreck. One small stand of survivors leaning in a huddled oasis amid the fallen. Beautiful. And I'm thinking about how avalanches cover things, right? And you've done so much work uncovering things, like your historical research for Tammy Bond and other interests you have in seeing what the past is. And then an avalanche is a sudden, like, everything is covered and ruined and erased in a, in a flash. And the, but then you also know, as someone who's lived through many avalanche seasons, that in the spring you go and recover, dis- recover things. And that last poem with the stand that survives. Yeah. And you can still see what's written. You know, that things come out of all the marks. Yeah. That's and there, that's this particular stand that I was talking about, it's like they almost look like, des- like, like a desert oasis palm trees. They're, they're, they look like they just staggered up on the shore and they're just huddled together. And I think of, you know, we're doing that too. You know, like just what has happened to the Bears Ears National Forest? What's happening to, you know, this right and that law? And it's just, we're just huddling together, waiting to like, is it safe to kind of come out? Like what happens yeah. next? Yeah. What's the regrowth? What's the regeneration going to look like? And will there still be a place for us? Yes. And now it's scary. I mean, for me, it's scary that the natural world is kind of losing its natural rhythms right? with um, human, the yeah. consequences of yeah. um, humanity. Um, but certainly there is comfort in knowing that in nature, after something devastating happens, things regrow. It's going to be different, though. It's It's never the same like a forest. A meadow is not the same as a forest, and um, a pond is not the same as a creek, a dam. Things change. Rivers change. And and it'll take generations. Mm -hmm. You know, when they clear-cut around here um, for for homes and for the timber industry and to, you know, load up the the donkeys to head up to the mines, they, this Telluride looked a lot different. And now we get this really incredible beauty of the Aspens, but it's, it's a different, it's still different. Like we're still not, it's been a hundred years and still, it's still regrowing. Yeah. Uh, I know we don't have time to read the deep time poem, but could you just tell about, talk about that project? So again, for the historical um, museum, they were do they were really looking at what what this area looked like sort of prehistorically like this was a, a place of dinosaurs there's been dinosaur bones found around here and it was very humid and um 
it just looked a lot different. There was ferns, it was hotter. It was more, I think it was in a place where like Arizona used to be, like the continent has shifted since then. And so um, they asked me to write some poems about that early of earliest eras. And And most poets would say, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sure, Sarge, (laughs) I'll do it. Um, but it led me to like really look at things on a much bigger like cosmic level and yeah. look at deep time and I don't know. I'm so glad you did that project. Your first book though, All Ember, really more autobiographical, but interesting to read in context of the work you did later about deep time and avalanches and covering things up and seeing a bigger a town's history and a region's history. Mm-hmm. And it might be nice now to read some of more, more autobiographical work. But can you tell us a little bit about where you? What was the name of your town you grew up in? Buena Vista. Buena Vista. Very small mountain town. Um, gosh, I don't even remember the population. The number doesn't hit me right off. But like one stoplight. Okay. Kind of a small town. Yeah, I'm a Colorado girl. And was there a mine? Your dad was a miner. My dad was a miner. He. My mother came out from Kentucky where they were miners in, in Appalachia and they followed the mines. Like, so there wasn't a lot of money left in Appalachia and so they sort of followed I-70 into all the mining towns of Colorado, finally ending up in um, working for the molybdenum mine um, close to Leadville. And then my father, um, they also worked the, the molybdenum mines as well. So. Are those, say that word again, molybdenum, and it's, um, I think it's a, it's what made steel strong. Oh, so it's an element that they're taking out of the earth. Wow. Yeah. So after the gold and silver are gone, you're taking other stuff out. Yeah. And then that, that mine was also boom and bust. So there's so much, yeah. That was the main industry in the town? Yeah. I would definitely say so. It was what paid the most, especially if you didn't have a college degree, um, it was, you know, easy to find work, and it paid well. If the mine was going full time, you know, because okay. you were always being laid off, and so wealth and and uh, poverty the could come any time, depending on the steel industry. Yeah, is when. Yeah, and I think we finally had to quit and move to Denver when I was probably in about fifth grade, and and it, the whole time of mining was sort of a brief time. Yeah, when you're thinking about. As you are, Deep dinosaur time. and dinosaurs, <laughs> but we're still sentimental about that. Okay, read us yeah. something from oh, Ember. Um, also a beautiful book. Thank you. Um, I'll read Manifest. So this is kind of about me growing up in Colorado, but it harkens back to my roots and like who I am based on who, who I came from. Mm-hmm. Manifest. I'm a child of HUD houses, the cardiac arrest of the Rockies, a child of sage and tumbleweed, of living a sandstone's throw from the cemetery, a frozen crust of moon boot trudge, the dusty bike ride out to the rodeo grounds, the dare to walk across vast wooden beams above splintered stadium seats. I'm a child of the 80s, of television, turning the silver knob on the squat console, no 84 Olympics, the smashed black and white against the drywall's corner bead. 
a child of a Vietnam vet and a beauty school queen, the great-grandchild of an Indian man whose mother skinned more than knees on the trail of tears, who sold her heritage for two beets and a warm chicken egg. I am the mutt of black Ireland, dark veins and snake-handling Sundays of winding Kentucky hollers and panthers who scream in the night, moonshi moonshine feuds and bottles broken for scarring, folks who live deep in the ivy of Appalachian Mountains, of mustard poultices and honeycomb on the table for biscuits. I am Sanity's child, who fled by rutted frontage roads, stained by black lung and bad luck, who reached out to a man I didn't have to save because, though I am a product of generations of teenage lust and long highways of losing him in the rear view, I'm also the daughter of women who work, of deep grease in the folds of corporate uniforms. I'm the child of stocked pantries, aluminum canisters of powdered milk, and blocks of government cheese. I'm a public education taxed on the back of the mother who cut hair for years, who fed countless strands through her two fingers under the fluorescent light of a beat-up post-war shack, child of cottonwood and aspen who hand-fished in the Arkansas. My voice crack and lightning strike in the heart of pinion pine. I love that poem. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that is a good introduction poem, too. Thank you. Okay, read us another All Ember poem. Gosh. Um, was it hard to put this book together because it's kind of personal? Yeah, I would I would definitely say so because I think I, it's, it's my, you know, like first book full-length book and so I think I just kind of put my heart and soul in it it was a lot of the poems that I was writing um, my heart out when I was trying to get my master's degree and um, so you know all the all your issues come up like the things that formed you your grandparents your parents um, where you came from it's your sort of origin story and um, so one of the things that I would say formed me is I had a really terrible car accident when I was 16 years old and so it's interesting that I'm writing about the aftermath of avalanches now but it probably all harkens back to a poem like this it's called aftermath there are no snapshots of the sunlight on my thin arms the scab on road rash healing the opiates and kitchen knives my mother hid my parents' oak laminate dining table, plastic daisy centerpiece shoved to the side, the insurance adjuster stirring her iced tea, shifting her stilettos in the sculpted red carpet, her pen dragged across forms, waiting for me to surface so she could assess the damage. There are no photographs of my best friend sheltering me with her red hands, fingers that scaled and itched from the bleach of her summertime dishwashing job. I remember her pink arms, propped on the pillow above my head. She'd gossip about the waitresses, answer the door, sign for flowers. She was the first line of defense for anyone I couldn't face. Until the day I could walk again, removed the neck brace and bandages. She stood a full foot shorter than me, grayed heads shot through with holes. She'd smuggle partially melted malts for us to drink through thick red straws. 
I let mine sit as she watched the hollows of my cheeks sink further until she had to look away. There are no photographs of the other girl sprung from my passenger seat. Her slight gymnast's frame, similar dark blonde hair, paint smudge on her white fingernails. I still see cassette tape strewn through the yuccas, her pale body draped over jagged boulders, the sagebrush glittering in shattered glass. Even now, when I return to the bend in the path, gray county road scribbled with tar, I'd need a picture to know exactly which curve it was where I released the wheel. But there will never be an amber negative or proof from a red-lit room, something black and white to show her clutch on me. Wow, that's so um, amazing to read that in the, in the context of the avalanche poems you're writing now. I mean, I, I don't think I would have ever seen that parallel without you asking me and then just sort of flipping through and seeing aftermath and recovery and, you know, something devastating that happens. And maybe maybe it's it's left me in some senses you know i've been able to go on and make something of my life even with that devastation but i'm still drawn to it and it still has lessons yes and sometimes i think that i'm done with that part of my past but there are bigger things that show me it's the same lessons and more minute lessons i think that i have to fine tune and figure out and suss through it's I guess your life's work and you find your symbols and your what speaks to you in, in nature I guess until you finally figure it out I don't know if that'll come <laughs> I might be hopeless well thanks for sharing that with us um, Kirsten Bridger on the hive it's been a joy to have you ah it's been so great to talk to you as always so glad you're here and so glad that my hive is coming to your hive and you came to my hive and we're just Buzzing busy bees <laughs> okay bye bee for the honey bee bee for the yeah.